Welcome to School of Thought, out of WPFW Washington, D.C.'s only radio show at the intersection of social justice, higher education, and music. You were just listening to D.C.'s Been Good to Me by The Jogo Project. I'm Shalina Chetlani. And I'm Corinne Ruff. We're so happy to be here again with you today in the studio. As you all know, I was away for the past few weeks. I was traveling in Eastern Europe, taking a vacation. Yeah, it sounded it sounded pretty terrible. You know, you got to eat all <laughs> the food and go to all the shows. It was really incredible. I went to a couple of jazz shows, actually, okay. while I was um, in Prague. I went to this one place called Little Glens, this uh, Irish pub that had a tiny little basement at the bottom of it. And I kid you not, it was like you were two inches away from the performers <laughs> and it was so special and um, it was great to just be in that tiny little cave of a space hearing the jazz music playing and being in Prague I mean <laughs> of course that all of, all of that all together was just was just wonderful uh, one of the best parts about being abroad actually was that I still got a chance to go visit a university okay which one was that I went to Central European University in Budapest. Okay. Yeah, it was really interesting. I actually went to go see the president's lecture. What was interesting was that they were talking about the rise of populism across Europe. And I was really fascinated about, by this because I was touring all of those countries and seeing that in front of me. And one of the most interesting parts about this is that the prime minister of Hungary, actually, Viktor Orban, is getting rid of Central European University. He's ousting it from the country and they're going to move it to Vienna because he thinks that the institution provides too much intellectual threat to the country. So it was interesting being in Budapest, seeing all of that around me, being an education reporter, thinking about the show and WPFW, and and I think it also hits close to home. Yeah, absolutely, right? We're seeing more of a populist government administration talk about education and think about merging the you know Department of Education and Labor, which we talked yeah, about on the show exactly. last week. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, mergers and acquisitions are like a buzzword in the industry, right? I mean, anytime anyone hears about a merger happening, it's like disaster. Yeah. And to think that the Department of Labor and the Department of Education might be merging, they're completely separate entities, and it really demonstrates even the rhetoric. I, I mean, you know, it may not happen, it probably won't happen, but even the right. rhetoric of this happening demonstrates a shift in the importance of education in the country, even in uh, conversations about public funding and a lot of state schools having so little funding that they might shut down. That's wild. Right. And it's been happening over the last decade. Yeah, absolutely. And ties into our theme today, right? <laughs> absolutely. So not having enough funding and talking about student debt, right? With students bearing the big brunt of the cost of getting a degree today, which is more expensive than ever. Exactly. And it seems like students are coming up against so many of these barriers. And really, I mean, breaking it down for our audience, if you think about it, it was always the institution that began as a place where a lot of really important movements happened, like the civil rights movement, for instance, a lot of students were involved in that movement. And if they didn't have a platform to learn how to get the types of skills to engage in a democratic dialogue, then that wouldn't be possible. Uh, so, you know, now that's happening again, where a lot of institutions are coming up against these huge barriers, but 
students need to be able to have that platform to learn how to engage. And so today I'm really excited because we're going to be speaking with Tiffany Jones, Director of Higher Education Policy at the Education Trust, um, and actress Melanie Newby to talk about her experience in the entertainment industry and passion for social justice issues. I saw Tiffany speak at a panel not too long ago, and she can really break down this issue for you all today as to why you need to care about student debt and why it's also part and parcel of this larger issue about getting access to the institution broadly. And right, and, and the debt that comes with going to a private university can be much higher than public school, but I mean, absolutely. I went to school, University of Illinois has one of the highest in-state tuition rates. So yeah. thinking about, do I go to my public university or you know other public universities, which are almost comparable? Right. Obviously, this is an issue that we're both very passionate about. <laughs> so we're very excited to be speaking with Tiffany and later on in the show to be speaking with Melanie, who can provide the creative spin on, you know, what social justice issues mean to her and how we can contextualize that more broadly. And I know Tiffany has some experience with hip hop as well, so she'll be able to get into that on the show. But we're just going to go straight into the news hits for the show today. I'm sure many of you uh, heard last week uh, there were two big Supreme Court rulings that happened. The first one that happened was with uh, labor unions. It was ruled that the First Amendment is violated when money is taken from non-consenting employees for a public sector union. So this means it's a violation of the First Amendment right for a company to take money from their employees to give to unions so that they can have rights like collective bargaining, right? And so that Without might- their consent. Without their consent, exactly. So instead exactly. of just automatically, you're just in it, you pay your dues, you have to choose Exactly. To be in it. And that's a big problem, right? Because when you think about the apathy of joining a union, it's pretty high. If you're already in it, you know, you're probably more likely to participate because you're right. paying the dues. But, you right. know, it could financially be very burdensome now for unions to have the same kind of funding that they did before to organize. Yeah. And, you know, it might not be immediately um, apparent as to why this is applicable to higher education, but there are a lot more, there's a lot more union activity that's happening within the world of higher education, particularly among adjunct professors and with graduate students. And the reason why this is important is because unions are a platform for them to be able to bargain with university leaders for more rights. I can say, for instance, I had a friend who's a PhD student who is not only working on writing her, her dissertation, she's also teaching classes, but she's not making a lot of money, so it's very hard for her to stay in school. And so the ability to collectively bargain with the institution to ask for more rights is extremely important for these types of students. I will say, though, on, on the other side, right, conservatives are saying that this is a big victory for them. They're saying sure, it's a big right. victory for, for free speech and individual freedom so that you are making the choice to be a part of that union and that you're not just being lumped in with it. Um, so that is kind of the counterpoint to this is all about individualism and having the choice to be a part of that or not. Um, the other thing is, right, this is not the end of unions. Unions right, will continue exactly. to go on. I think it will be difficult for them to figure out how they're going to come up with the same kind of funding that has allowed them to organize for health care and benefits and the like. Um, but I, I don't think unions are going to go away anytime soon, no, right? They're, As you they're said, definitely they're not. more and more popular, you know, with uh, graduate students and adjunct faculty members, especially. Yeah, especially now. Um, but it's important to keep an eye on, on how this is going to go. And also important to keep an eye on another Supreme Court decision that's going to impact higher education, especially. And that is the so-called Trump travel ban that the Supreme Court decided to uphold with a 5-4 decision. Uh, so the Trump travel ban, if, uh, if you all don't know, is a restrictive policy 
that bans uh, certain residents of mostly of six mostly Muslim majority nations and has some other impacts on countries like Venezuela, but not particularly the, not particularly the individuals, but mostly politicians. Um, it, the ban affects how the government is going to give student visas and other types of short-term visas uh, and also uh, admissions into the country to residents from these mostly Muslim nations. The longer-term impact that this has, and a lot of experts uh, in the education industry have spoken out about this, like Ted Mitchell, the president of the American Council on Education, who submitted an amicus brief along with 32 other industry associations last year. He followed up on that uh, last week, saying this adds to a perception that the United States is no longer welcoming to students outside of the country that they're able to come here and receive an education, right? And so that also sends a signal to students who live here now who perhaps have friends that are international students or who are interacting with family members that are international. It does, and if you look at the dissent of it, right, so Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Stephen Breyer both uh, dissented on this opinion and noted specifically the harm that it could do to colleges and for students and scholars. And so Sotomayor called this, quote, openly discriminatory policy. And so she kind of backed up the notion, right, that um, the administration is signaling to other countries that these students and scholars are not welcome here at these institutions. And that's really bad for universities, right? Because, um, you know, this really started hitting universities not now, but in the fall when it was first announced. Um, now that it's been upheld, it's, it's official, so it's more of a big deal. But, you know, since then, colleges and universities had said that their, you know, foreign enrollment is declining. And, you know, the U.S. admits twice as many international students as any other country. And, you know, those students are contributing to the economy, are contributing their intellect to the jobs and the creation of the country. So potentially very harmful effects for the in industry overall. Absolutely. And I think the longer term harmful effect is what Ted Mitchell said, is that it sends a signal that the American education and the American dream is actually only accessible to some people. Up next, we're going to be speaking with Tiffany Jones about the very important topic of student debt. But before that, we're going to be playing a Kendrick and Flying Lotus song that she actually recommended. So enjoy.
Welcome back to School of Thought. You're listening to WPFW. We're here with Tiffany Jones of the Education Trust. Hi, Tiffany. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. We're so happy to have you here on the show. Yes. Thank you for having me. Great. Yeah. So Tiffany is going to be talking about the very important topic of student debt. To break this down for you all, student debt is a really crippling issue for the nation's most underserved communities. The average student loan debt for the class of 2017 graduates was $39,400. In total, students owe more than $1.48 trillion in student loan debt. If you look at the other piece of it, right, is when you're going through school, you know you're going to get this debt on, but what happens when you can't pay it back because you can't get a job or you can't get a job that pays enough for it? So last week on the show, we were talking about um, a report that came out um, last year, some government data that was showing that um, student loan default, there's a student loan default crisis, especially among black students and students that attended for-profit colleges. So half of both of these groups defaulted within 12 years of enrolling in college. So the study tracked students that enrolled in college around 2004. So up to 40% of students who took out loans in 2004 made default by 2023. So it's really important um, to keep in mind that you know, this study was looking at students who probably graduated sometime during the financial crisis, so that does play into it, but it does still show you the magnitude. It's very prevalent. Nearly half of students are struggling and could potentially default on those loans. Tiffany, thank you so much for being here to share your experience on this issue and explaining how serious of a problem it is and who it's affecting. You hold a PhD in urban education policy from the University of Southern California and a master's degree in higher education administration from the University of Maryland and a bachelor's degree in family studies and English from Central Michigan University. So excited to hear all of your expertise. Can you tell us a little bit about how your educational experience shaped your career in higher education? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so you've acknowledged that I've attended three different colleges and universities. So um student debt is very real to me <laughs> personally, but I think for me, I always wanted to go into education. And then when I got into higher education, um, I realized there were a number of issues, especially around campus racial climate um, and just kind of the welcoming of students of color at predominantly white campuses and got really involved in some of the policy issues around affirmative action and others. Um, and so that really shaped my career trajectory. And I, I decided then, like, I wanted to focus on higher ed. And so that's why for, for graduate school, I, I my concentration was always in higher ed and trying to figure out how to create more seamless pathways for students like me who were low income who are the first generation in their family to to attend college and for students of color for women for so that not only could we access higher ed and that we could also be successful um, and definitely the ability to pay was really really important part of that process whether it was accumulating debt whether it was working and how that impacted my decisions and just a quick example I mean I was working in the dorms um, a couple nights a week overnight and I actually started off as a math major and I had calculus early in the morning maybe 8 a.m. the night after I had been up all night working and really struggled in that course wow. to the point where I was nervous about losing my scholarship which had a pretty high GPA requirement so when I went to see my advisor uh, you know because I was really nervous about what happens if I don't get an A well I lose my scholarship and have to return home and you know kind of rather than providing me with advice about tutoring 
tutoring options or other opportunities. It was next thing you know, I have an English degree, you know, so kind of got counseled out of that pathway. And I was fine with that at the time, because, again, I was very concerned about the, my ability to pay. If I lost my scholarship, I right, would not absolutely. be able to pay. And the reason and it wasn't a full scholarship, right? I had to also cover living. And that's why I was working, which also impacted, I believe, in retrospect, probably my academic performance at 8 a.m. calculus. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'm sure it affects, yeah. that's a story that's that hits yeah. close, to, close to home for a lot of students. Mm hmm. So last year you wrote a book, Can Equity Be Bought? A Look at Outcomes-Based Funding in Higher Education um, and some of the problems that you see with performance-based and outcomes-based funding. So more than 30 states now use a formula that divvies up funding to public colleges and universities based on the outcomes for their students. And it seems like the intention is good, right? You want to incentivize administrators to focus on the success of students. Yeah. But as you also point out, um, that type of model really hurts low-income students and students of color. So why do you think this model is so inequitable? And, you know, what are the models that you're looking at that could actually help, you know, mitigate some of the problems? Yeah, well, I think one very important point is the ways in which we are funding colleges and universities have historically been inequitable. Um, and so some argue that it was based on how many students you've enrolled, but that was one piece. Um, but there were all the other things such as political relationships. And so a lot of times the campuses where uh, the wealthier students attended actually got most of the more of the state funding than those other campuses that were serving more low income students, students of color. Unfortunately, we've seen in some of the versions of performance based funding kind of the same thing. And sometimes uh, those formulas make that issue worse. Um, and so I'm really excited about an opportunity to actually revisit how we fund colleges and universities and try to do something different. I'm excited that that conversation, at least on its surface, is about student outcomes um, because that's really important. And in fact, we know that it's students who don't earn their degree that drop out who struggle the most to repay their loans. Um, so among those who earn their bachelor's degree, less than 10% default on their loans. But that figure is you know, nearly a third for those students who do actually um, drop out and not complete. So encouraging colleges and universities to take seriously uh, how well their students are performing and graduating and graduating on time is really good. Uh, but the challenge is those campuses that are more selective um, already have students who are more likely to graduate. Why? Right. Those are students who already have resources and right. those campuses have resources to support them. So we have to make sure as we're having that conversation to push campuses to pay attention to whether or not students are able to repay their loans, whether or not they graduate, we're also providing resources and support for the campuses where low-income students and students of color are most likely to attend so that they are able to implement strategies to better support those students so they're able to provide them with scholarships and aid, ensure mm -hmm. that they're able to graduate on time. And so those kind of campuses I'm thinking about are community colleges, historically black colleges right. and universities, some more open access uh, four-year public colleges as well uh, that typically get less of the funding. Yeah, absolutely. The elite institution just automatically has more of an endowment, has more funding, and they often tout themselves as being able to provide a lot of resources for students. Uh, but I think that there's been more rhetoric around the reality that it's really the community colleges, it's the mm -hmm. HBCUs, it's the minority serving institutions that are really doing the work of providing a affordable education for most of the students in this nation, um, but they don't have the resources they need. And I think a lot of that happens with the rhetoric, right, of, of you know, what is really the purpose of a community college? We saw that with President Donald Trump saying not too long ago, what is a community college? I mean, obviously mm -hmm. that, even, that adds so much 
Yeah, absolutely. I would say, um, you know, I can have a conversation about kind of what can happen at these low resource institutions to better support students. Um, but I think first to your point around the elite institutions. So Education Trust uh, did an analysis a couple years ago on college endowments, for example. And right. so they had a group they call the $500 million club. So these were colleges, universities that had endowments over $500 million. And over half of those institutions were in the bottom, you know, Five percent or so for Pell enrollment, which yeah, means um, how the percentage of their students who are low income. So, despite them having really large endowments that they could use to provide scholarships and financial aid, which many of them do use a portion, they're not doing enough because still right. the the majority of their students are. Um, more, you know, higher resourced. And um, in fact, you see the opposite with a lot of the community colleges, HBCUs and others, like you mentioned, are kind of taking on the brunt of that, that right. service for the entire higher education sector with fewer resources. And so in terms of what needs to happen, I think a couple of things. One, um, when we're having conversations around something, let's say free college or debt-free college, we need to be thinking about um, how to also invest in the institution so that they're able to serve those students better, hire enough faculty, make sure that there's no declines in quality alongside opening up access, which I think more aid to students is a great thing, especially low-income students. Right. Um, I think another important piece is, you know, tuition costs at community colleges are not the problem. Community colleges yeah. don't have an affordability crisis related to the cost of tuition. Um, however, low-income students attending community colleges often struggle to pay for college because of housing costs. So some have estimated that tuition is only about 20% of what it actually costs uh, to attend. And so that means if we're talking free college, we have to be talking about the full cost of attendance. So that's housing, mm -hmm. transportation, food, daycare, right? Um, and so making sure, and maybe not for everyone, but for low-income students especially, um, if we're going to like fix affordability. And I think also when we're talking about student debt, it's important to distinguish kind of who has the most debt from who struggles the most to pay. Because we know over half of the like amount in terms of dollars belongs to you know, graduate students. And I'm a graduate right. student who would love for all my debt to disappear. But I also understand that you know I'm well-employed and I'm able to repay my loans. So I'm not struggling to repay my loans, right? In the same way that uh, students who struggle to find uh, employment and have uh, decent earnings uh, do. And so I think the solutions have to look a little bit different. They have to intersect with our focus on completion, making sure that they get their degree. One thing I think is one other uh, idea I think is really interesting. Uh, Wayne State University, and from my home state of Michigan, <laughs> uh, is actually experimenting with a program where they're um, going to forgive a, a portion of students' debt because also those students who don't complete, who struggle to repay, have small amounts of debt, um, you know, a couple thousand dollars. And so they're going to repay a portion of students' debt if they re-enroll to finish their degree. Um, and so I think that that initiatives like that that are being really smart and strategic and targeting those students um, who struggle the most to repay their loans um, are really on the right track. That's a really interesting example, right? You're looking at it very holistically, and I'd be curious to see, you know, what kind of outcomes Wayne State University is mm -hmm. seeing, um, because I think the other part of it is public schools look at this and say, okay, resources that'll cost more money. We're mm -hmm. already not getting enough federal funding. Kind of, how do how do the schools make that financial piece of it work? Yeah, yeah, no, no that's. I think that's a really, really good point. Um, it's actually when enrollment goes up at an institution, I mean, that's good for them financially. Um, and so in some ways, 
you know, but at the same time, there are concerns around capacity and support, though, the support services, whether it be tutoring, advising, um, other uh, support services that are connected to student success. Um, and so there is a lot of concern from institutions, and rightly so, especially if we're talking about solutions that would just drive enrollment and not come with additional resources for institutions to better serve students. I think you can do both. And an example is um, Senator, Senator Schatz, uh, Free College uh, bill that was introduced earlier this year that did both. And it was about um, a partnership between states and the federal government where the federal government's providing resources, uh, states are providing resources to institutions, institutions have to commit to not raising um, tuition, but uh, it also, there was you know a pot of funds available for institutions to be able to implement initiatives to support student success, which I really think is is important. So I think you have to do all those pieces at once. Are you seeing any of these examples happen in the DMV area? So I think, um, you know, there has been conversation in terms of, you know, Maryland in terms of their, their mm -hmm. free college um, bill. And I think Maryland also has a, a need-based aid program that um, is actually quite generous for like low-income students uh, to attend college. And so uh, I think it's a it's good in the sense that it's targeted. And in fact, when you look at state kind of uh, free college programs, um, when you target aid towards low-income students, um, you actually see better representation in terms of low-income students and students of color in compared in terms of who you'd expect to benefit based on the population in okay, a state. Yeah. Um, when you don't, when it's just a kind of an open, more open, broad program that's not targeted for for low-income students, unfortunately. Um, a lot more of that aid goes to students who could already afford college. And that's part of the issue, I would say, that contributes to kind of this affordability crisis that we're in in higher ed, that institutions and states are now spending more money and have for a, a while now spending more money on wealthy students who could mm -hmm. otherwise afford college, right. whether it's because of a merit aid program, which are based on, you know, having high test scores, um, standardized test scores, which are highly correlated with income. Um, so you higher your income, you higher your test scores, and then you get more money to go to college, which you could have afforded anyway, instead of saying these students are low income and here's additional aid. Right. In the past, we didn't do that. Um, right. More of our aid was provided to low-income students who could not afford it. So we're literally doing the opposite, unfortunately, in a lot of cases. And, on, and in some versions of free college, you kind of see the same thing. Awesome. Tiffany, I can't thank you enough for shedding light mm -hmm. on this important topic. As a, as a final question, I want to ask, you know, for our listeners out there who perhaps aren't embedded in the higher education industry, why should they care about student debt as an issue broadly? How does this impact their lives? And, um, you know, after you give your answer, I think you're the best person to, to introduce the song that's following uh, Chance and maybe explain a little bit, since you have a little bit of background in hip hop, why you chose so, some, of these, uh, uh, some of these songs. Um, <laughs> and so you totally distracted me from the question. We're taking it back. With, We're going all the way back into your past. Right, right. <laughs> with, with that request. Um, but no, student debt is, is a really important issue, whether or not you have debt. I mean, it, there's article after article about how it impacts the entire economy um, in terms of uh, folks' opportunities, whether they're trying to buy a home or uh, what they're able to afford and making uh, life choices. Uh, it's really important. And for those students who are at the point where they're actually struggling to make their monthly payments, um, they actually default has huge consequences for their lives in terms of um, you know, credit and then obviously closing doors on what, they're what opportunities they're able to provide. What I think we're going to need to keep an eye on and see very soon is is the intergenerational impact as 
you know, students yeah. are going to be attending college and have parents who are still struggling with their own student debt. That's going to continue to have ripple effects on the entire society. So it's definitely uh, a, a crisis we've got to figure out as a community. Absolutely. Um, and so in terms of, so I should be transparent. I was a big goofball in, in <laughs> high school. And so me and my friends used to wrap the morning announcements. Amazing. And we used to be in yearbook <laughs> class and we would, would write our uh, announcements into lyrics. And so we actually, uh, so you're going to laugh, our um, group name was STD. Because <laughs> we, our tagline was, we're STD, we're infectious. And it was our, it was the acronym for our initials. It was like, you know, Shayna, Tiffany, Dominic. Nice. Wow. Um, and again, it was more of a joke. So we would, you know, rap, but it's hilarious. And when I went back from my class reunion, folks were like, are you guys going to perform? <laughs> and so they hadn't forgotten. Um, but no, definitely always a, a big hip hop and music fan and love the Chance the Rapper cover of the Arthur theme song um, and used to come home from school and watch Arthur every day oh, and just like yeah. fell, <laughs> fell in love. And definitely it's always been there in terms of and when I started in higher, I started as an organizer. And so music just in part of kind of that encouragement to keep going and not be discouraged. I think it's really important for folks, especially right now, um, who are in like the social justice community in the last, I don't know, week, month, year has been yeah. very difficult and staying energized. And so I think uplifting songs like that um, can always be a help. Hopefully Absolutely. bring some sunshine to folks who are out there fighting. Okay, yeah. well, great. Tiffany, thank you so much thank for stopping you. by the thank station. You. And uh, you're listening to WPFW Washington. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It could be.
I'm done growing up. And when I'm going down, I'm going to go down swinging. My heart's still smiling and my heart's still singing. All right, you are listening to WPFW Washington, and this is School of Thought. Um, so we are back in the studio now for the Artist Spotlight, and I am so excited to welcome Melanie Newby into the studio. Hey. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> How's it going? It's going great. Um, I was just saying uh, off the air that I listen to the station all the time, and uh, I was quite surprised <laughs> when I came in here and I realized, oh, it's uh, 89.3. I already listened to it. It's already on my radio. So. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, yeah well, glad to have you on it. Um, yes. uh, you know, I was saying, so we met at Southwest Soul Sessions, yes, the yes. very first one, the inaugural one, um, a couple of weeks ago, and I got to hear you sing a little bit. Yeah, it was my <laughs> first time, um, you know, singing with a live band, uh, performing in front of an audience. I, I sing... Um, but privately <laughs> in the shower well it didn't sound like you were just singing in the shower yeah, it was fun it was more in support um of another local artist cecily and uh, she's one of my oldest friends we go way way back so i was there um in support of her and yeah and we met and yeah you know, it's just awesome how how those connections are made yeah exactly so your your background isn't in music but you do have a ba in acting with a minor in cinema uh, cinematic arts from u.s in Los Angeles, and yes. a lot of your background is entertainment and film, um, but you also are a licensed massage therapist to pay the bills. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's funny because, you know, kind of going off of the conversation from earlier, and I have to shout out to Tiffany, who's, who's also fellow Trojan, so fight on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as, as an artist, every artist knows this, that you find creative ways to kind of supplement your career. And so, yeah, massage was one of those things where I I felt that it was something that I could do as a day job and support myself. Yeah. I was tired of serving and bartending and that uh, that whole traditional like making minimum wage. Yep, so been um, been there too. Yeah. yeah. I mean I think yeah. the the server, the classic coffee shop or server job oh, yeah. is yeah, did it in all. tandem with the arts community. Did it, you name any odd job I've probably done it. <laughs> so could you talk a little bit about your educational experience and kind of how that shaped your career? Yeah. Um <clears throat> so I'm kind of coming off of uh, the other side of of hearing your your conversation on the student debt. I was fortunate and blessed to have parents that supported me in in my acting career so much so that um, they took on the burden of uh, paying my way through college. So yes, their student debt. But it's not falling on me. It's falling on them. And even though, you know, I don't have that burden, it still kind of affects me because I feel like, well, you're you're in debt because of me. So I feel like it, it's kind of my responsibility to take whatever I make from this education that I got to, you know, pay it forward, pay it forward to them and pay it forward to um, the generations um, after me. But um, in terms of my education, um, 
you know, your your general four-year um, theater school, uh, one of those theater kids, you know, that is just out and on campus and singing and dancing and doing all the crazy yep, theater, theater stuff. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I grew up listening to uh, musicals. I, you know, I would listen to Rent and Les mm-hmm. Mis and Into the Woods. And, yeah. you know, I, I listened to all that stuff and singing through the halls of my high school. And so kind of just carried that on. And that's kind of where the love for acting kind of grew mm-hmm. out of that. Maybe you can talk a little bit more of a specific instance, perhaps, that you've used to talk about a social justice issue and, and what it means to you. Um, well, I'd say it, it hasn't really um, presented itself as an opportunity for mm-hmm. me to be able to talk about it on a big scale. Yeah. I think um, it's been more... Um, of a, an opportunity for me to, to talk about it one-on-one with someone or, or maybe in like a smaller setting. But, um, I, you know, I, that's always something that's like in the forefront of my mind. Like as I, um, grow and get more successful in my career, I want to be able to, um, always have that as, as an aside, you know, I, um, I don't know if I told you, but on Saturday there was the the rally yeah. for the the families belong together, and right. um, just being there and experiencing that, and you know, kind of being in the midst of all the energy that was surrounding that rally, um, that is that's something that that really sparks me to to keep going and and my career. and want to be able to to be a voice for those people. You know, you saw people like Lin Manuel Miranda who spoke, and um, Alicia Keys, and um, America Ferrera, and so I, like you know, you see, oh yeah, they're a celebrity, but you know, they stand on these issues and they have a voice because they're recognizable, and so I I feel like it's not just you know, oh I have a talent, I want to express my talent, and I want to become rich and famous. But no, like the bigger the bigger issue, the bigger story is there are people who can't speak. There are people who can't um, express their pain. And I want to be able to do that in a creative way mm-hmm. and be able to do that in, in, a, in a bigger, bigger way. You mentioned to me when we met that you do comedy, too. Yeah. And it's a little bit of improv. And I, I wonder, being in such a political city, when we've talked to other artists, it kind of inherently comes up that you are talking about issues that are being formed yeah. in the Capitol. And I wonder if you've ever incorporated some of the, some of those issues or more yeah. political things into your comedy. It's, I mean, it's either hit or miss. Yeah. <laughs> but, I'm sure uh, it depends on the venue. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, we, well, no, not thankfully, but we have uh, an administration and um, a president who has been the brunt of many jokes. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's good for you. It's, it's, good for, it's good for comedians to be able to to take some of uh, his antics. And, um, and, you know, sometimes you don't even have to twist it. It's just like, okay, well, he said that he did that it, that's a joke in and of itself right. so he's kind of making my job easy <laughs> <laughs> so you've you've also um done films and tv shows mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about that bra- background and yeah. working in LA and Atlanta yeah so um working in LA um I did a lot of more more smaller things smaller projects um it wasn't until I moved to Atlanta that I was able to kind of get a little bit more under my belt um I've been on 
you know, big sets like uh, there's a this show out currently on Fox called The Resident. Mm-hmm. A hospital show, right? Yeah, it's a medical show, and you know, I play a nurse okay. on the show. <laughs> um, shout out to all my nurses out there. <laughs> uh, and um, so anything from like big sets like that, where you know you feel the energy and you're like, it's a go go go, or mm-hmm. it's like hurry up and wait. Um, to you know those small student projects, and and you see the next generation of directors. Actors um, and actors who are coming up and who, whose um, dreams are as strong and, and they have as much passion as I do. And so I love being able to um, help on, on both sides of that yeah. you know, and everywhere in between. What do you think is unique about the D.C. acting and comedy scene? Um, <clears throat> I think DC has a really great theater scene. Uh-huh. Um, there's a lot of great uh, richness in that, um, and a lot of great history um, in the theater scene here. Uh, I have, you know, moved a little bit away from theater since graduating, but I, it's always heartwarming for me to see some of my uh, former classmates who um, are still like in the city or kind of moved back to the city um, and see them flourish uh, in, in a play or in a musical or something like that. But um, as far as, as actual uh, filming, they don't film too much. Um, in D.C. proper, they will either film more so in Richmond mm-hmm. or um, in Baltimore. If you've ever heard of uh, Homeland or House of Cards, they film in those yeah. cities respectively. Big House of Cards fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, they film uh, they film that um, just outside of Baltimore. Okay. Yeah. So where can people in the DMV area see you perform either singing open mics or comedy or acting or what have you? Well, the the singing at open mics is definitely um, going to become a new thing. I you know that that was definitely something that, that sparked my uh, my interest in doing that in the future. So um, wherever the open mics are, I, I will definitely be there. I got to do my research on that first. But um, as far as comedy, uh, DC improv. I I'm there um, all the time. I like I like the DC Improv. Um, Are there certain have, nights that you can go for that? You can go any night. You can. Um, I think uh, I think it's pretty much every single night. Yeah, Sunday through. Uh, and then Saturdays are kind of more that like the headliners, mm-hmm. like the bigger names. So I'm not there yet, yeah. but <laughs> working my way. Um, the uh, Tuesday nights is when they have improv. For like, so they have classes. So they'll do like a level two or a level three, and that's when they'll have their showcase. So that's always really fun. Um, I really like uh, improv. So that'd be an opportunity for people to come out and see how the students are kind of how they conclude their their uh, classes. So that's a graduation mm-hmm. in a sense. Can't thank you enough for for joining us on the show today. Uh, We're going to close out with some most deaf. (laughs) I don't want to write this down. I don't want to tell you how I feel right now. I don't want to take no time to write this down. I don't want to tell you how I feel right now. Hey, tomorrow may never come for you or me. Life is not promised Tomorrow may never show up For you and me This life is not promised I ain't no perfect man I'm trying to do 
Me and my baby, me and my lady Times I don't want to get into no 